Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Martin Pierce, filling in for Mark Kenny while he takes a well-deserved break. Democracy Sausage is produced in partnership with the Crawford School, the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations, all at the Australian National University. Just like Mark Kenny, this week we're taking a little break from Australian politics, but unlike Mr Kenny, we'll be crossing international borders on the Extra today, returning to the UK from where our guests will be joining us shortly. 2020 has been a very difficult year for everyone, but it's been an especially difficult year for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his government. While Johnson may have gone into the year fresh from an election victory and determined to push on with his promise to get Brexit done, it's been downhill from there. There was the scandal of his senior advisor being accused of breaking lockdown laws. There was the mess involving students having exam results decided by an algorithm. And then, of course, there was his personal struggle after contracting COVID-19 that left him in intensive care. The government's critics say that there were a series of missteps in handling the virus, including locking down the country too late and having an inadequate testing regime. As we record this, more than 41,000 people have lost their lives in the UK. And while new infections are holding steady around 1,000 a day, a push to reopen schools and get the economy firing again, it contracted by 20% in the last quarter, could see the country facing the kind of second wave numbers being experienced by some European nations. I would have said some other European nations, but of course, Johnson did get Brexit done. Now comes the challenging task of agreeing to a deal with the European Union. 
Neither side is making many positive noises about that happening, and time is against them. That's despite being described as the easiest trade deal in history by former International Trade Secretary Liam Fox. The current transition period with the EU expires on 31st of December, so can they make a breakthrough? And how will the pandemic change the coming months for Johnson and his government? And with me on Zoom to discuss these questions is an amazing panel of UK-based experts. Ros Taylor is the editor of LSE's COVID-19 blog and well-known to discerning podcast listeners as a presenter on the always excellent podcasts, The Bunker and Romaniacs. Ros, last time we had you on Democracy Sausage, you were editing the London School of Economics Brexit blog, but now you're on the COVID-19 blog. Are they just moving you to where the action is at any point? Basically, yes. I specialise obviously in disaster blogs and with uh, almost five years experience on Brexit, it's, it was a natural It was a natural move. Well, they say the third time's a charm, so maybe the third one will be one of the easier LSE blogs. Oh my God, I dread to think what that could be. Uh, just no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the LSE review of books or something like that. I imagine that might be a slightly more cushy gig. You know, it will be quite boring. I don't think I could. Um, it's a great, it's a great blog, by the way. But I don't think I could deal with the slow pace. Um, it would, it would be too dull. Uh, it's also a warm welcome back to Elizabeth Ames. She's a regular guest on this pod. She's a connoisseur of corn snacks, as we found out on previous podcasts. And she's also the National Director of the Britain Australia Society and the Chair of the Mentees Australia Institute London. Elizabeth, you recently dared me on Twitter to test your knowledge of the British government's latest COVID-19 slogan. Is it seared into your memory yet? Well, it's, it's written on the pad in front of me, Martin, which is even better than see it into my memory. I, uh, I have not lived down getting it wrong last time, certainly not with my family, who are avid pod listeners. So the current slogan is wash hands, cover face, make space. Uh, and my boyfriend helpfully has a mnemonic dance to help us remember that. <laughs> can you? Uh, obviously, a podcast is not a visual medium, but can you describe the dance for us? Yes, yeah, so you have to wash your hands vigorously in front of you. You then cover your face with your hands, and then you do a dab to make space. <laughs> I wonder if that was what Boris Johnson intended with that slogan. I, I think my uh, partner would love to audition for a job as the, you know, interpretive dancer for number 10. And last but certainly not least joining us is a warm welcome to Georgina Wright. Georgina is a senior researcher at the Institute for Government, where she focuses on UK-EU cooperation after Brexit. And her research interests include Global Britain, Franco-British relations, and the future of the EU. So all very quiet areas, probably not much going on there, Georgina. I mean, really quiet, but actually a bit like was. I'm always looking for sort of the latest wave of excitement. But, um, but you know, it, it has been a difficult year for the government, but it's also a very exciting year. And it's really great to be at the heart of it and to be able to analyse it all. So let's start this off by talking about Brexit. In the second part, we'll move on to talking about COVID-19, but obviously recognising that these two things are quite intertwined in, in what's happening in the UK. Perhaps, Georgina, if I can start off with you, what's the latest on the Brexit discussions? It doesn't look like they're going terribly well. Well, I mean, we're still very much in negotiating mode. Uh, You know, there's been some progress. We know that negotiators have upped the number of rounds, so the number of talks they've had over the summer, but we've still got major sticking points. And of course, 
you know, this was always going to be an incredibly complex negotiation, um, you know, irrespective of optimism sometimes from our trade secretaries and our government. This is a complex negotiation. It's untangling, you know, 40 plus years of of membership and very close partnership um, and ways of doing things, of trade. And so this was always going to be very complicated. Um, I think in Brussels, uh, there was never really an expectation that we would be anywhere else at this point. Um, they always thought that a deal was more likely in the autumn than it would be over the summer. Um, so we shall see, but pretty much no surprises from me on where we are right now. Elizabeth, you used to, uh, you have a background in trade. Would the, would the UK EU trade deal be something you would be keen to seek? It- sink your teeth into? I mean, it's a fascinating negotiation. Most trade negotiations are a process of removing barriers between two countries or two blocks. And this negotiation is sort of putting barriers back up. Uh, So it's almost a trade negotiation in reverse. And it's been interesting from the very early optimism that this would be a very easy deal, the barriers didn't exist. You've seen this sort of tit-for-tat escalation between the two sides of, well, if you won't agree to this particular outcome, then we will be putting these barriers back up. And so you're almost locked in a a sort of weird situation where both sides, instead of trying to liberalise trade, are in fact making it more difficult. And they're getting stuck on things like fishing rights. You know, fishing, I think, is sort of 1% of the UK economy and about 0.2% of the EU's GDP. But it's become this totemic issue in the negotiations. Uh, And it's Interesting to see, you know, having worked on Australian negotiations where they are very rational, you know, Australian negotiators, Australian governments on both sides prioritise areas that are really important to the Australian economy. And here you're seeing special interest groups get prioritised over a, a comprehensive deal. Speaking of trade negotiations, can we talk about Tony Abbott briefly? Because I'm sure he's yes. a man with of, of special... <laughs> Special interest to you, Martin, and listen. He's also a man of special talent. So yes, absolutely, Ross. Well, it's emerged overnight. It's not quite clear what role he's going to take, but he's going to take some kind of role on the board of trade in the UK, either chairing it or not chairing it. We're not sure, um, but he is a curious, a curious addition to the Brexit pantheon because he was actually anti-Brexit before the vote, then quickly switched allegiance and wrote um, a very, very pro no deal um, or let's go WTO as it is uh, unfortunately styled in Britain in many ways. Uh, he, he wrote that to the Spectator magazine where he explained that it was all going to be absolutely fine and uh, leaving with no deal would be, uh, would be great fun. So I see this as a quite worrying development because even if it isn't very important in the bigger scheme of things, it almost seems to be lining things up for a potential no deal. And over the past few weeks, I've seen a lot of experts in this area up the chances of no deal to something like 45% from about a third. It does seem to be getting more likely, partly simply because we're running out of time, but also partly, I think, because the it is absolutely clear the British government does not have the bandwidth at the moment to deal with anything except COVID-19 in any depth. And nor is the press, to be fair, giving the giving Brexit the attention it deserves because everybody is so um, concerned with the pandemic. So it is, to me, getting more likely. And unfortunately, Tony Abbott's appointment, if it's concerned, uh, if it's confirmed, rather, seems to me 
to be a bad sign. I think, Ros, what's fascinating is the way in which Australia has become a model for some of the the people on the sort of stronger side of Brexit um, or the right of the Tory party. So you don't see them talking about a WTO deal or a no deal anymore. You see them talking about an Australia-style deal with the EU, which is ironic because, of course, Australia does not have a trade deal with the EU, but is in fact in the process of negotiating one and wants better trading access to the EU and has made that a priority of their European um, diplomacy for a long time. I helped work on the opening of those negotiations uh, between Australia and the EU. And you also see them talking about Australia-style points Space system for migration. So I don't know whether it's the influence of Isaac Levito et al. Um, in number 10, and there's a lot of Australian advisors uh, around uh, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, or whether it's been decided that Australia is a sort of friendly, happy, sunny place. And so if we talk about the impacts of Brexit being Australian impacts, that will make people think that they're less severe than they really are. Yeah, I think Australia has always reckon, uh, represented that in British life ever since uh British people were encouraged to leave in the 50s um, and 60s. I think it, it represents a sort of ideal in our minds, which uh, is very hard to shift. And Johnson has capitalised on that in his in his applying Australia Australia deal. You know, even as you say, there's no such thing as an Australia deal has capitalised on that. So, Ros, you mentioned there the chances of a uh, no deal being, you know, according to some experts, uh, around 45%. How are public perceptions towards that? Have they shifted as a, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic or has public sentiment towards the possibility of a no deal been pretty static throughout? Um, it's been pretty static, I would say, for the past year or so. I think people are extremely weary of it. COVID-19 has made them even wearier of it. And there is already a degree of news avoidance going on in the UK with respect to COVID-19. When it comes to Brexit, that is going to be multiplied. What you have seen in recent weeks is a slight move towards people thinking that in retrospect, Brexit was uh, was a bad idea, where about... Sometimes it can be as as high as 50% of people now say that, uh, that Brexit was was, uh, a bad idea and even even more in some circumstances. And that's an important question to ask, because if you ask people, should we uh, should we have left the EU? They will usually say yes. But if you ask them in retrospect, was it a good idea to go through this protracted, long drawn out nightmare process? A lot more of them will say, well, actually, in the end, I'm not I wasn't that bothered. It, it, we really shouldn't have gone for, uh, through with it. So there's been a minor change in public opinion. But as I say, public opinion is already avoiding the news and has not been thinking about Brexit. And there are many, many more pressing issues in people's minds uh, that they're concentrating on right now. I mean, just to, just to come in on that, I think it's really important to remember that while the UK has left the EU, it only really has left the political institutions of the EU. So it's still part of all the economic institutions. It's still part of the market. Um, it's still part of the customs union. So actually, in reality, the, the change hasn't been markedly different because you don't, you're, we're trading in the same way. The UK is still part of the EU's trade agreements. That, that change will be felt 
on the 1st of January, or if not further, certainly during the course of 2021. So I think it's really hard when you ask people, you know, was it a good idea? Do you think that that future is going to be better and rosier? Because actually people haven't really seen the difference. So it's going to be very interesting to see, I think, next year how people react, particularly if, you know, the UK does leave with no deal and you have the cumulative effect of COVID-19 and Brexit no deal and what that does to business supply chains and to the UK's overall economic resilience. So I think that will be really interesting to come back to that, I think, later on. Georgina, staying with you, what about European attitudes towards Britain now? I mean, have they shifted any as a result of having an entirely different crisis to deal with? It's really important to remember that Brexit's always been important to the EU, but it's never been a priority. And that's simply because member states wouldn't let it be a priority. You know, there are lots of things going on with the EU and the EU is at a point. I mean, this was before the global pandemic, a a real crossroads. Um, And I know it's quite fashionable to say that all the time, but actually it really was. It was it's thinking very, very deeply about, okay, well, what does Eurozone reform look like? What can we do together? What should we do separately, independently? And so there are all these big, big questions going on. And then you had Brexit dominating a lot of the time, a lot of the space. And you had leaders like Macron, you know, French president saying, look, we will obviously take this seriously, but we need to move on. We need to do lots of other things. So I think the global pandemic has meant that that Brexit has just fallen further down the agenda and the list of priorities. Um, it will come back. Autumn's going to be interesting. It's going to be exciting, at least for for policy nerds. Um, but I think overall, um, the global pandemic hasn't shifted attitudes in the EU on Brexit at all. Um, it's very much we are where we are. We'll do what we can and we'll see what happens. All the noises coming out suggest that they are still quite a long way from striking a deal. And there is this cliff edge of the 31st of December coming up. Is there any chance that both sides might agree to extend the transition period? I mean, it's very difficult to extend the transition period. Um, essentially, there, you know, there was a clause in the withdrawal agreement, so the so-called divorce deal, the exit agreement, that said that the UK and the EU had until um, the 30th of June to decide whether or not to extend this period of talks for one or two years. And the government said, absolutely not. You know, we're firmly committed to ending the transition period at the end of the year and to start our new relationship on the 1st of January, be that with a deal or not. Um, we at the Institute for Government have actually looked at ways that you could do it. But it's just honestly, it's a bit of a faff legally and politically. It's really complicated. So you'd have to um, basically assume that both sides really, really wanted to extend that period of talks or really, really wanted a sort of phasing out of this current relationship and phasing into the new one, what we're calling an implementation phase. But that needs to be negotiated. What are the terms? Do we require financial contribution? Legally, what does it mean? How do you manage that divergence of standards? So there are big questions that are currently unanswered because, um, you know, who knows what's going on in the negotiating room. But so far, what you're hearing in public statements is that they're not discussing that at all. So um, it is possible, but it but it's complicated. Roz, it would be a huge political U-turn for Boris Johnson's government if they did decide to extend that transition period. But he has done some policy U-turns th- this year. What do you think of the chances? Fairly low. I think the chances of him being able to guess away with that um, are minimal. He still has a large number of people, uh, MPs, 
thanks to his big majority, who are deeply, deeply opposed to what they see, see as caving into Brussels. And an extension would be seen as a sign of weakness on their part. You should not underestimate in the Brexiteers' psychology the importance of standing up to Europe and being independent. And an extension would be regarded as caving in and letting them walk all over us and postponing what they have been looking forward to, frankly, for a long time, although why they've been looking forward to it for so long, I, I cannot begin to imagine because it's going to be very, very difficult. But they want it, they want it really done. And I cannot see him being able to do that. Also, in the context of what the UK has gone through in 2020, in many people's minds, they have already suffered food shortages, you know, empty shelves, which is one of the things predicted under a no-deal Brexit. And therefore, psychologically, there's the feeling, I think, among a lot of people that we've dealt with that, we got through that, we can also get through whatever the consequences of a no-deal are, however much experts may uh, point out that that was a short-term problem and Brexit is an extremely long-term problem. Georgina, Germany has the presidency of the uh, European Council or took it over in the middle of this year. What effect might that have on things? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question that Germany sees itself very much as a consensus builder and a broker uh, inside the EU. I mean, it managed to uh, broker the Lisbon Treaty, which was the last iteration of the EU treaty, which, you know, seems like ages ago now, but was really fought in a complex negotiation of member states saying, absolutely not, we're not willing to sign up to this. And Germany was the one that, that managed to kind of pull um you know, uh, that together and bring people around the table. I think Germany's stance is very much, this is a commission-led negotiation. That's how the EU leads all its negotiations. The commission uh, will negotiate and they're negotiating on behalf of member states. So whatever the commission agrees to has had approval uh, from member states beforehand. So they feel very much that they're involved. The question really is, if we can't, you know, um, break this deadlock, are, is it going to require political intervention at which point, who intervenes on behalf of the EU? Is it the Commission president or is it, you know, some like a, a duo or trio of Macron, Merkel and, you know, the big kind of EU countries coming together? And so, you know, they might intervene, but it's certainly not what they want to do right now. I actually think that's a really interesting point, Georgina. Looking at this sort of post-Brexit, you know, the UK coming out of these political institutions, looking at the new alliances that are being formed in the EU. So if you looked at the negotiations over the financial rescue package for COVID, you saw the Dutch leading this sort of new Northern European fiscal conservative bloc within the union saying, no, we don't want to be responsible for Italy's debts. We don't want to be responsible for Spain's debts. And watching that process of coalition building without the UK has been a fascinating insight into the dynamics of how the EU might work now that the UK has left. So thinking about the role that the UK played, it was often the sort of, you know, Madame Non Non Non, as uh, Margaret Thatcher was known, moving that out of the way and forcing some of these other countries that often sort of sided with the UK but didn't have to be the front runners on saying no to European deals. I actually think the dynamics of the EU over the next 18 months are going to be really interesting to watch. 
And what about Britain's trade talks with non-EU countries? I mean, that was one of the key argument that the Brexiters put forward, that they'd be able to strike out on their own and this sort of promised land of these amazing trade deals that they'd be able to strike with the US and with Australia. How are those things going? I mean, we read recently that one of them got derailed over an, a, 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 an agreement on Stilton. You know, they're going, they're ongoing. Um, that's all we can say at the moment. Um, I think, you know, by the government's own analysis, trade deals aren't going to make much of a difference to the UK GDP, actually, overall. It's more, again, coming back to what Ross and, and, and Elizabeth were saying earlier, it's about optics. It's about showing that actually the UK is moving forward. This is a sign of the UK being able to exercise and, you know, uh, punch above its weight or whatever it is that you want to say on the global stage. And I think, um, you know, uh, we, we've heard that actually negotiations with Japan are going rather well. Um, we know that uh, negotiating rounds are expected to um, pick up and intensify with Australia um, over the coming months. So who knows? It might be that before the end of the year, the UK has signed a couple of trade agreements. But again, it's materially what what difference does it make? And what is the UK going to trade in result? Because these negotiations are compromised. Both sides have to give in. What is the UK going to give in? And particularly if you look at sort of a trade negotiation with the US. Um, so it will be interesting to watch, I think. And a lot of those negotiations, a lot of those negotiations are really dependent on the final outcome of the deal with the EU as well. So a lot of those negotiations can't be finalised until the other side knows what it is actually the UK, what terms the UK is going to have with the EU. So whilst most of them have agreed, you know, I know the Australian negotiations have agreed the sort of scope. So they've agreed what the chapters will be, what's in scope, what's out of scope. That's all happened. And the negotiating rounds are ready to begin they won't be able to be finalised until the final shape of the UK's deal with the EU is known. So you can't actually finalise any of these deals until the major blocker is dealt with. And, and as Georgina and Roz have been saying, that hasn't been going very well. And of course, if the US is one of these trade deals that they're hoping to strike, they've also got the added complication of an, an election sort of playing out in the middle of all of this. Yes, and and, and potentially... Uh, both sides not being super pro-trade deals. You know, it used to be a function of US politics that both sides were quite pro-free trade. And interesting, in the last election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, you saw both of them disavow the TPP, which was the sort of signature piece of trade negotiation under Obama. So I'm not sure that Joe Biden is going to be significantly more pro-trade. And Trump has been quite a disruptive presence in terms of global trade. He's obviously renegotiated NAFTA, and that is now in place. He supposedly negotiated the best ever deal with China, uh, although that is being um, delayed in implementation because of the pandemic. But I don't think you'll see either side really pushing for trade liberalisation. And in that respect, it almost doesn't matter who wins the US election. It's still going to be an incredibly difficult negotiation. Meanwhile, it's just exceptionally difficult for businesses to plan around this because they don't know where their potential markets are. And if they we do go for no deal and they're thrown out of their EU markets, some are withdrawing already in that expectation. But if they're thrown out of those, they might reasonably ask, well, where else can I trade with, given the limitations of what I sell and whether it can be exported that distance and all those different questions. And there is no certainty about under what terms, how we can export goods 
uh, any any longer. And that is what is very, very difficult. And of course, it's being compounded by COVID-19 and the hit the businesses have already taken over that. I do want to um, take a break in a second, but I just want to return to this thing around sort of public attitudes towards Brexit. In the years leading up to um, the the recent election, the public discourse, I think it's probably fair to say, got pretty toxic. It was pretty divisive uh, for the for the British public. Ros, has that divisive discourse quietened down any over the last six months? Has there been a, obviously a, a, a more imminent crisis to deal with? We do hear a lot less about Remainers and Leavers as defining oppositions in British politics. And that really has to be a good thing because it was becoming so toxic. Other, other uh, lines of difference have opened up. For example, some of the culture culture wars that over masks and so on. There have been some commentators in Britain who have tried to import the opposition in the US over masks into Britain with, I would say, fairly limited success. Uh, there, there's a, a small minority of people who I think are refusing to wear masks in Britain, but it's nothing like that movement in the US. I don't know. I, I, I'm very reluctant to agree with people who, who say that the pandemic has brought us together. I think the pandemic has an effect by virtue of separating people and preventing them from mixing with each other. It has an undermining effect on the social contract in Britain. And it is going to take an awful lot of work to overcome that. You've got a situation where kids have been out of school for six months nearly, most of them anyway, and communities have, there have been some new links in terms of people helping each other and doing the shopping, but the fundamental institutions that hold people together and give them common experiences, whether that's things like schools or whether it's public transport, have been undermined and there are very many people who are reluctant to take part in them still. And I think we do need to do an awful lot of work in this country to rebuild that social contract. I don't think the pandemic has eased the fundamental tensions in British society as much as some people would like to think it has. And I'd just add very quickly that, you know, you really have seen for the first time a real um, real support for Scottish independence, which you hadn't seen in a while. Um, so there's there are strong regional identities that are coming through uh, very, very prominently in this crisis. And that's partly because uh, the different regions have had different responsibilities in terms of, um, you know, managing this crisis, um, but also because it's really brought up this point about, well, if we can do things locally, why are we doing them nationally? So I think there are the, it will be interesting to see what happens next. So a very interesting point there, I think, about, you know, whether it's brought people together. And I want to pick up on that again in a second. But for now, let's just take a quick break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bissell. 
Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. So welcome back. I'm still here with uh, Ros Taylor and Elizabeth Ames and Georgina Wright. And before the break, we were talking about whether the coronavirus crisis has brought people together after the very toxic atmosphere that, that we saw during Brexit. And I wonder, uh, perhaps I can put this to you, Ros, do you think the community feel the same sense of camaraderie that we saw at the start of the COVID-19 crisis, you know, as witnessed by the sort of clap for carers movement and, and so on? Or has that dissipated over the last six months? I think it's dissipated. And as I was saying earlier, I think it's partly because the institutions and structures which would bring people together are not there. The the community spirit that people invoked during COVID-19 was very much around individual acts of kindness, whether it was clapping on the doorstep, whether it was buying food for your neighbour who was shielding. Uh, It was very much based on individual acts and there were no new structures created to to encourage that. One of the examples, I think, is uh, in ways in which the government failed to capitalise on something it could have done, was very early in the pandemic, there was a move to create a sort of volunteer force that would in some way help the NHS or help social care or encourage people to get involved. And loads and loads of people, hundreds of thousands of people signed up for this. And then we heard nothing more about it. It has totally vanished. And there have been no new structures enabling people to do that. And as I say, we've had lost the, uh, a lot of the structures that we have that normally play a big part in securing a sense of community. Uh, whether that's uh, groups like even, say, the Scouts or whether it's things, it, it, people are not able to come together in the same way, have big meetings inside in particular, because that's going to be an even bigger problem as the winter approaches. It is going to be very hard to hold meetings of any size inside. And that has an enormous impact on what you could call doing democracy, because you can't do that in the same way over Zoom. It's not the same experience at all. We've seen it with the party conferences cancelled this year. And it's very going to be very, very difficult to uh, recreate those structures and bring people back together. It was interesting, Ros, as well, that you saw today the announcement that effectively contract tracing on a national scale has failed and the 6,000 or so contract tracers which were hired privately at a national level are now going to be released from their jobs, fired, and that responsibility is going to be devolved back to local councils where it probably should have sat in the beginning and local councils from the beginning said, we know our areas, we know our communities, let us do the work and engage with them. We'll be better at that contract tracing than a centralised privatised system will be. And In some respects, that helps to sort of bring the community back together. You have people who live in that community talking to people, asking them to isolate if necessary, probably more effectively. But it goes back to the point Georgina was making before the break, that this crisis in some ways has really atomised the UK. I've said 
before, I think, on this podcast. I've definitely talked about it with, with Martin and my, Mark outside of the pod, that the UK isn't federalised in the way Australia is. But I think what's really interesting in this crisis in both countries is you've seen this sense in Australia of state identity, you know, the Queensland Premier saying Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders, quite remarkable statement in the Australian context. And you're seeing UK regions and sort of back to some of the ancient kingdoms, you know, Cornwall saying, we don't want visitors because we don't have that much COVID down here and we don't want Londoners coming down and giving it to us. And so that atomization of the UK state, both in terms of the four constituent nations and the, the incipient, um, you know, positive moves towards um, another vote for independence for Scotland, but also a real sense of each of the regions that they are their own region, they want to have their own control, they want to have that local control and a move away from London, which is really in tension, I think, with the project of Prime Minister Johnson and his advisor Dominic Cummings, which is actually a very centralising impulse to bring all the power back in to a reformed Whitehall and to bring that power back into number 10. It's a fascinating tension uh, that I think at the moment the regions are winning. There are obviously huge benefits to councils taking on that kind of task. Like you say, they do know their community and the people working in those in those areas will be part of that community. But are councils actually equipped to do this? I mean, we hear lots of stories about you know the the financial struggles that uh, that UK councils are under. Perhaps, Rose, if I can throw that to you. Councils are certainly struggling at the moment. Uh, they've had to spend a lot of money on the pandemic. Um, of course, their social care, which for which they're responsible, has come under even more pressure, and a lot of them are in deficit. And I think a, I think about five percent are in very very serious trouble. Um, and will will almost certainly need to be bailed out. So there needs to be yeah a, a, a big consideration of the amount they've had to spend on this, and of course moving the uh, responsibility for effectively for test and trace over to councils incurs a further a further expense on them. So no, I don't think they are ready for it, and I don't think it's something that the government is yet on top of and has yet realised because, as you were saying. Uh, Elizabeth and Georgina, the impulse of this uh, government is a centralising one, in particular in the in the person of Dominic Cummings, who wants to shake things up from the centre. I think not quite understanding that that simply will not work in the current context. Ros, you mentioned some of the coordination problems that the government has had, and they've had a number of them. There's a number of kind of missteps at the start of the coronavirus response in particular. Um, how is that viewed by the British public? It doesn't appear to, from what I see from looking at the polls, be having that much of an impact in terms of the, the people's voting intentions. No, it hasn't yet. It's had a small impact. You've seen Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, gradually rising in the polls and in particular on a personal level, I think he is pretty much level pegging with Boris Johnson in terms of who people will trust to be uh, trust as prime minister. And that is great progress considering the struggle that his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, had to command public attention and public re- respect. But I think we're going, we, we're in a slight, it's not quite right to say a honeymoon period because there is no COVID-19 honeymoon period. Uh, that's the wrong term. But we've had a bit of a hiatus here. We've had a couple of months in which people have been 
work, those who could afford it on holiday, they've been able to meet outside and meeting up outside and it's very important for people's psychological welfare. It, it's also much, much less dangerous, of course, than meeting inside. And I think the public underestimate at the moment, unfortunately, how bad things are going to potentially get in the autumn. What is absolutely clear about COVID is that it spreads more readily inside. And as the weather gets worse, people will understandably want to do that. We will therefore see the risk of a big rise in infections, which we haven't seen uh, yet over the summer. We've seen a gradual ticking up, I think, probably largely thanks to the Chancellor's encouragement to people to get out and spend money eating out and so on, and also going on holiday. This has been a charmed two months in the context of 2020 as a whole. Things are about to get very difficult and very serious. And I expect to see that reflected in the polls, particularly as companies start making many more people redundant. They've done that already. There have been some big redundancies, but that will really start to kick in next month. And we haven't been in Britain, a, a country that is used to high unemployment, not since the early 1980s, which is outside most people's most people's working memory now uh, and the impact of that the visceral feeling that we are failing as a country will be very great once that starts to become apparent georgina ros mentioned there that you know that autumn is you know a, a potentially difficult space in terms of the coronavirus crisis and we've got this sort of cliff edge of no deal coming out but how are those two things going to combine both politically and and in terms of uh, negotiating that deal i mean i guess it really depends on whose perspective you take um the, the difference i think between Brexit, no deal, and the impact of COVID. Because as was, I think, said earlier, there's been this tendency to say, well, we've weathered the storm, so we can weather whatever, you know, throw at us whatever you want. We, we, we as a nation can survive it. But actually, they're very different beasts. And, you know, uh, part a lot of our, our food, obviously, um, is imported from the EU. If you put a strain or you disrupt that supply chain in any way, that is going to be... I mean, you're going to see it almost immediately on, on, on shelves. And you, you've got supermarkets coming out and saying that we just don't know uh, how we're going to do this. We've already, we're stocking up. We've got, you know, warehouses, but this is going to be the winter. So obviously it's different as well because um, you obviously have to, you, you know, store differently during the winter and then it's Christmas. And so you are, you do have businesses coming out and saying this, but how this has an impact on people and on citizens, I mean, and how they're, they're, whether that changes their overall perception of the government, I mean, remains to be seen. The election is really, really far away. And there's a lot that can happen between now and the next general election. Um, as Ross said, at the moment, the Chancellor has been basically dishing out a lot of money and everyone likes a Chancellor who dishes out a lot of money. But then once you have higher levels of unemployment, you start to hear stories that you might not be able to access your favourite food or it will be more expensive. Um you know, and then I think the other thing is there's at the moment Labour have been have been playing this very shrewdly in the sense that they're not sort of bringing out this, you know, the, 
kind of a different vision for the country. They're very much critiquing what the government is doing. And so that means that actually in in, pub, in the public's perception, there's no real, they don't really know where Labour stands on, on many of these sort of big um, issues other than they stand differently. Um, so I think, you know, the impact, whether it's a political impact or whether it's the economic, I think, there, there will be change regardless of whether there's a deal between the UK and the EU visibly in terms of how trade operates and certain goods and, and, and the price of those goods. But how it ha- the political impact is, is really unclear at this point. Now, I do want to move on to talking a little about schools, because schools seems to have been a bit of an Achilles heel for uh, the government at the moment. There was obviously the A-levels fiasco where students had their final grades decided by algorithm. Um, and there is, uh, it seems a lot of head teachers are very resistant about the idea of students, students going back to school or students going back to school not wearing face masks. There seems to be an awful lot of movement in this space. Ros, why, why are the government struggling so much in, in the education sector? One reason is they have a very weak Education Secretary Gavin Williamson, who has no real interest in the subject and has struggled. His strengths lie essentially in whipping MPs to do what's wanted. He's not a good um, cabinet minister. Um, but fundamentally, I think the the um, UK has played this very badly because they wanted their ambition was to get kids back to school in June. They managed to get years, uh, officially years, uh, reception one and six back. And then they basically said, well, we can't bring back any more because there isn't space in the schools. And they could they could and should have anticipated that there wouldn't be the space in the schools because they had introduced a rule saying that kids had to be in a bubble of 15. And they knew perfectly well that the average class size was 30 and that therefore they had a problem. They could have planned for that and they totally failed to do that. Uh, there were ways in which they could have worked around it, but there was no imagination shown. And uh, as a result, I think, um, parents have become very mistrustful of promises that they were made. They have also got quite used to having their kids around. And I think it has been very surprising, I must admit to me, because I have struggled with homeschooling. One of my kids went back in June and year six. The other one who's in, who was in year two didn't. And I have really, really struggled to homeschool my child. But I have to I have to try and think about this from the perspective of a lot of people for whom education perhaps is not quite so centrally important. And I have really struggled to educate my seven-year-old son. But there will be a lot of people who, for all kinds of understandable reasons, are not even trying to do that. Um, and I, I don't condemn that. It's inevitable. That's why we have schools. We have schools because parents are not, frankly, 95% of them capable of educating their children, either because they have jobs themselves or because they don't have the skills needed. But the government has not put across that message. As I say, we have a failing social contract in this country where public institutions and what the state provides is, I think, increasingly distrusted. So the breakdown of that trust has really affected people's willingness to go back. And while I was expecting that parents would be desperate to send their kids back, um, I I am wrong. There are a large proportion of parents who are not. And we really urgently need to tackle that. And the government 
only in the last couple of weeks or so, or last week or so, in fact, come out and said it is a moral duty to get uh, kids back to school. It was always a moral duty. It should always have been the number one priority over pubs, over garden centres, over all the other things that we have prioritised over schools. The original sin around the A-levels was actually not holding the exams. Exams, by their very nature, are socially distanced. You have to sit a metre away from the other students in an exam so you can't copy their paper and you can't look over. So for me, the big issue with A-levels going right back to March was a decision taken that just schools wouldn't come back, children wouldn't sit exams. And then once they'd made that decision, which I think was too hasty and didn't acknowledge the way exams work, then layering on top of that this system where teachers I think probably and it's been seen in the marks which are much higher this year now they've reverted to teacher grades a lot of teachers gave students higher grades than probably they did normally partly because they thought well it's been a very interrupted year it's been really difficult I need to be generous in terms of the way I mark but I think teachers had in mind that actually there probably would be some downgrading within the algorithm so you had this problem where teachers were trying to game a system that they didn't really understand the algorithm then brought those grades down and you saw these sort of huge injustices for some children particularly high achieving children in traditionally low achieving schools who had you know there's one girl who had an offer for Cambridge who was expected to get three A's or an A and two A stars and who got three E's. And that sort of result really tugged at the public heartstrings and meant that the entire system was thrown out of the window. And so now you have this fiasco where it's not just schools, but we've sort of pushed it onto universities because there are now far too many children who finish their A-levels with marks that are much higher than expected and who are now eligible to go to university, and the universities actually don't have places for all of them. So you've just sort of got this rolling crisis where the marking was done poorly or wasn't communicated well, that's then been pushed on to, to universities who now have to deal with trying to take in this huge influx of students they don't have space for and can't socially distance. And at the GCSE level, where those results have just come out, GCSEs are effectively a sort of end of year 10 results in the UK. And those results decide whether or not you can go on to study A-levels. And a lot more children have got the results that say they can go on to study A-levels. So you now also have a parallel problem in the A-level colleges where far more children have got results that enable them to go on to A-levels that normally wouldn't get those results. So it's not just a sort of an immediate crisis that we've had this month. It's one that's going to be rolling on for a number of years. And and I agree with Roz. It should have been right at the beginning. It should have been a moral duty to get education right, to get results right for children and to make sure that the system held up. And that was not a focus of the government. I mean, you use the word fiasco and it is a fiasco. It's the kind of fiasco that in normal times would probably cost a cabinet minister his job. But why, and perhaps again, I'll put this to you, Ros, why isn't that happening? Why is Gavin Williamson, even though he has, by your account, lost the confidence of the public, why is he still in a job? Because all the members of the cabinet have to be 100% on board with the Boris Johnson Brexit project, potentially no deal. He has basically ensured there are a large number of uh, able, skilled politicians who left the Conservative Party or who can no longer serve because they are unwilling to sign up for his uh, for his uh, vision of Brexit and uh, to serve him individually as as a as a person. I mean, it, it is worth remembering that I, as long as short a time ago as a couple of years ago. 
many, many Conservative MPs would have told you that Boris Johnson could never be PM, that he wasn't fit to be PM. And yet now he is PM. Uh, some of them, a lot of them changed their minds. Some of them didn't. And uh, those who didn't have been excluded. That means that you have a relatively small pool of talent. And I use the word talent advisedly because I don't think, I think it applies to many of the members of the current cabinet. Um, from which to choose. And he has relatively few people whom he can trust to be loyal to his project. I also think that Gavin Williamson is being held on as a bit of a decoy. And should he screw up again, should there be yet another thing where we have to pull kids out of schools in October because of a massive second wave, for example, I can well see him being sacked then. So it's kind of useful to keep him in post for the time being, just so that he can be thrown to the walls in the future, if that's what we require. Now, before we move on from talking about coronavirus, I I want to talk quickly about how coronavirus is disproportionately affecting the poor in the UK. At the start of the coronavirus crisis, there were lots of people out there saying it's a great leveller. You know, it 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 doesn't discriminate. It affects everyone equally. But we we we've seen over the last year that is absolutely not the case. You know, the Child Poverty Action Group recently put out a survey that found that 80% of poor families feel worse off financially since the lockdown began. So how is it sort of playing out in terms of uh, increasing poverty in uh, the UK, Ros? It has obviously an effect, which we haven't quite seen yet, but... You you have you can observe some phenomenon, and the, uh, one of them, for example, is the way that people in manual jobs and in service of service face, uh, customer facing jobs have had to go out there and go back to work, whereas others in professional jobs have often been able to stay at home and work from the kitchen table, um, and that has been the most obvious example of the divide. And of course, there are many, many people, uh, ethnic minorities, BME, working for the NHS. And so that makes them particularly exposed to the pandemic. We know, too, that the diseases which uh, poorer people often suffer from, like diabetes and uh, the comorbidities, which which occur in those populations, make you more likely to die of COVID-19. And that, too, has had an effect. So overall... Yes, the poor have been hit harder and the poor will continue to be hit harder because that is inevitably what happens in recessions. And as jobs are shed, it will be those people who have no financial backup um, and whose job and often sometimes are on zero as contracts, which means they have they have reduced access to state benefits who will suffer. No, I was just going to say one of the maybe I mean, like most remarkable and, and beautiful stories of this pandemic was um, obviously seeing one of our main national football players, uh, Marcus Rashford, come out and say, really campaign, sending a letter to all the MPs and say, we absolutely need to continue free meals for school children during the summer. It's not because they're not going to school that, you know, that, that, that they that they can't be entitled to these um, meals. And there was a real call and a rally nationally in recognition that actually, um, as Ross has said, the dispro- it will disproportionately affect um, people from poorer communities. And that's because of their own access and abilities to kind of weather this storm. If you can't go into work and you can't be paid or you have a looser contract, which means that you can't benefit of certain 
um, you know, state benefits. And how do how do you handle that? And that, and I think just to see the government U turn on that and decide to continue uh, with school meals was was a really kind of a beautiful uh, moment actually in in this pandemic. So look, finally, I just uh, want to turn to some politics and talk about Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. He's been in the position for a little over six months now. Uh, And perhaps get a feel from all of you in terms of how you think he has changed the political discourse in the UK and also what his political strategy might be over the next few months as we come to this kind of these joint cliff edges of, you know, the the autumn coronavirus crisis and the potential for a second wave, but also what might play out in terms of Brexit. It's a great question, Martin. And I remember um, with Sophia Gaston, we were talking with Mark about six months ago when Sakia had just been elected the leader of the Labour Party and there was this discussion around, well, what could that mean? One of the things we talked about was his deliberate attempt to repair relationships with the Jewish community. And you've seen that still be very much part of his um, leadership. He's moved very quickly to try and distance the Labour Party from these anti-Semitism scandals. He's sacked a shadow minister that retweeted an article with anti-Semitic tropes in it. He's been incredibly good on that front. And I would say that's interestingly, that's sort of the policy area where he's had the most impact and has been the most public in terms of what he thinks and what he stands for. As Georgina was saying, otherwise, they've played this sort of a little bit like Anthony Albanese has in Australia. They've really played this idea of let's be a constructive opposition. Let's try and hold the government to account. Let's try and push them to do better on things. But let's not articulate a big alternative vision. The next election isn't for four and a half years. There's no point in getting out over our skis and saying, this is the UK we want to see. Let's wait and see where the dust settles, see what happens with the Brexit cliff edge, see how the government handles the the coronavirus across the autumn and winter potential second spike and getting schools back. And then I think you'll see them be much more vocal early next year. I think this has been a settling into the team, a trying to appear as though they're a sensible and moderate opposition, which was not always the case under Corbyn, and they're letting the government mess up and they're sitting back and just sort of saying, well, we'll put forward our vision when we're ready. Boris Johnson has also tried to drag uh, Keir Starmer into the culture wars uh, that he's been keen to perpetuate in the UK and Keir Starmer has to his credit refused to do that and you saw that over the furore over a statue um, of a uh, slave trader which was toppled in Bristol um, earlier this summer and uh, Edward Colston and Keir Starmer did not endorse the toppling of the statue and throwing it in the river um, where, which was one of the ways in which Boris Johnson was trying to draw a line and create a a point of difference there. And you also saw it um, just yesterday in terms of the furore over the BBC's screening of the last night of the proms. Um, I don't know if Australians will be familiar with this, but this is a quite, it has to be said, sometimes jingoistic evening uh, of the end of an otherwise quite sober um, series of classical music concerts at the Royal Albert Hall. When various we've all seen the video of uh, Nigel Farage singing yeah, Land of Hope exactly. and Glory. Land of Hope and Glory, Rule Britannia, various patriotic songs are sung. And normally you would have a big audience in there singing those songs. Uh, and this year, of course, that isn't happening. And the BBC decided that they should they weren't going to be sung as a result because 
there isn't that go- going to be that atmosphere. But this was weaponized by Johnson as the BBC being cowardly and um, basically ca- ca- caving into political correctness. And Starmer didn't take that bait. Um, he um, he didn't he didn't rise to it in a way that I think that Jeremy Corbyn could have done. So he's being very cautious. But the problem with the Labour Party at the moment, as many people are saying, is that we don't have a clear idea of what their alternative programme is. I think for the time being, that doesn't matter too much. I think we will see that emerge in the next few months. And I very much expect in the next few months to see a much more activist public starting to determine the direction of politics. I think there will be large marches. I think there will be a degree of civil disobedience. I think we will see as unemployment rises and as young people in particular who have been really screwed over by this pandemic um, find their voice, we, we will see uh, a new political kind of political discourse emerging. Georgina, uh, Sir Keir Starmer was one of the leading lights of the Remain movement, but he's obviously been much quieter about uh, about that over the last six months. What sort of role do you see him playing over the coming months as we approach that at the end of the transition period? I think exactly the way that he's been doing things up till now, hold the government to account, question some of the decisions, ask about the consequences uh, you know, ask for tangible evidence if, if the government has conducted analysis, publish them, ask ask the government what that means, get the government to clarify their positions. These are all things that basically the Conservatives do when they're in opposition. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is obviously you're seeing and you're hearing um, huge kind of discontent on the Conservative backbenchers. You know, they are not happy with the way that the government is you know, going towards hyper-centralisation, the fact that they feel that they're not always in the loop um, with, you know, decisions that they're finding out like everyone else in the press, and that's not going down very well. And Labour are just watching this, and they're thinking, well, let's just see where whether this does lead to a party civil war. The Conservative Party generally are known to be quite a cohesive party, and they, you know, they know that their central force is being united. So, you know, will that happen? Will that not happen? We don't know. But but I think there is this kind of long game and weight game where where Labour are thinking, well, we are the opposition. We hold the government and Her Majesty's government to account. Uh, but we're not going to, you know, present all the solutions or present all the vision at this point. And I think Ros is absolutely right. The key questions that are mobilising young people, uh, you know, things like climate change, where the young are thinking no one is taking this seriously. Is this something where Labour can position itself? And that could be bound in, wound into the Brexit, the post-Brexit future, the UK of the future, is it that Labour can then position itself far more effectively and quickly on these big um, questions that really are occupying and worrying a significant portion of the population and future voters? Well, I said at the start of the podcast that it's been a very difficult year for the UK and let's hope that the uh, coming six months are a lot brighter than the previous six months. But thank you all for your time today. Ros Taylor, Georgina Wright and Elizabeth Ames, it has been a fascinating discussion. And listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about. You can reach us on Twitter where we are Apps Policy from, that's A-P-P-S policy forum or join the pod squad on facebook you can find us there as policy forum at pod and join in the conversation 
I'll be back at the Hot Plate on Monday with Mark still away. And guess what? Monday is episode number 100 of Democracy Sausage. So join us then to celebrate our sausage century and for another great discussion on politics and public affairs. But until then, cheerio for now. 